traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. COVID-19 has sorted the winners from the losers in the world of warship. Religious institutions are businesses, after all, and like all businesses, the pandemic has posed a serious challenge. It's also, in spiritually trying times, provided an opportunity. And driving can bring out the worst in people. Road rage incidents happen all over, but in America, they're far more likely to result in a killing. And those killings have doubled over the past five years. First up, though. Boris Johnson's premiership has never looked so shaky. Britain's leader is under fire from the opposition and his own party members, who have asked for his resignation. I don't believe his position as Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party is tenable, and and he does need to resign. It started last month when a video of Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's press secretary, showed her joking about a Christmas party in 2020 at the British Prime Minister's office and residence at 10 Downing Street, a time when government rules had, in effect, cancelled everyone else's Christmas. It was a business meeting. I'm joking. This is recorded. It's fictional party. But the revelations kept coming. The Prime Minister had also hosted a Christmas quiz. Then, a picture of what appeared to be a party in the Downing Street Garden in May of 2020, when Britain was at the height of its first lockdown. The latest one, though, may be the last straw, the leak of an email invitation to about 100 people from Mr. Johnson's secretary to a party five days later, a bid to make the most of the lovely weather and have some socially distanced drinks. The rest of Britain was dutifully following the rules that had been set in Number 10, separated from loved ones, unable to visit hospitals or care homes, forbidden from gathering even at funerals for those lost to COVID-19. Throughout, Mr. Johnson has parried and evaded. All, all that, as you know, is the subject of a, uh, a proper uh, investigation by Sue Gray. Those were people uh, at work talking about work. This is where I live and it's where I work. Uh, those were meetings of people at work talking about work. And I really but yesterday, at the weekly Prime Minister's questions, an apology came, if not an admission. Boris Johnson stood up in Parliament and said sorry for attending a lockdown-busting party in Downing Street. Duncan Robinson is our political editor. Mr Speaker, I want to apologise. Now, his excuse, which sounded kind of absurd, was that he didn't realise it was a party, the sight of 40 or so civil servants having beers and wine in his garden. Number 10 is a big department with the garden as as an extension of the office, which has been in constant use because of the role of fresh air in stopping the virus. And when I went into that garden just after six on the 20th of May, 
2020 to thank groups of staff before going back into my office 25 minutes later to continue working. I believed implicitly that this was a work event. A lot of people found the idea of attending a party by mistake quite laughable. His defence, his defence that he didn't realise he was at a party. <laughs> it, it, it is so ridiculous that it's actually offensive to the British public. He was told in no uncertain terms by the Labour opposition to resign as a result. Is he now going to do the decent thing and resign? But Boris Johnson has gotten himself into hot water like this before. Why is it such a big deal this time? The main difference with this scandal is that people really, really care about it. British voters in particular, they really, really hate hypocrisy and politicians doing one thing and saying another. But people shouldn't be surprised that Boris Johnson has broken the rules because he's built his career on that. It's been part of his appeal. How do you mean? How, how is that appealing? Boris Johnson's always sort of painting himself uh, as, as a bit of a rogue, as a bit of a rule breaker. And he's been able to sort of charm his way out of it through most of his career. So he had his first break in journalism at The Times, a British newspaper, and he was fired for making up a quote. When he became editor of The Spectator and other magazines, one of the conditions was, I won't stand as an MP while doing this job. And then he promptly stood as an MP. When he became an MP, he was fired as a shadow minister for lying to his boss about having an affair. Then when he was mayor of London, he again said, I'm not going to stand as an MP, and then promptly stood as an MP. But that's never held him back. He's always got bigger and better jobs on the back of almost constant lying. And why do you suppose that is, that that, that should be a liability? Boris Johnson used to invert rules of politics. People didn't really mind about lies, partly because they sort of expect politicians to lie so much. And so when a politician is simply so obvious and upfront about it, it becomes this peculiar kind of honesty. But what Boris Johnson is good at is that he does sort of follow through on the big stuff. So he'll pick one or two major issues and then actually do them. So in the 2019 general election, he had two main big pictures. One was he would give the National Health Service lots of cash. And the other one was, I will do a deal with the EU and take Britain out of the EU. And he did both of them. But you were suggesting that, that this time it's, it's one lie too far or one lie too close to Britain's hearts. That's it. And because Boris Johnson's job was to be popular, he's not a sort of competent administrator. He's not really a sort of great political thinker. The moment he becomes unpopular, he becomes incredibly vulnerable within his party because he has no other purpose. So a lot of Conservative MPs think that Boris Johnson, there's basically no need for him anymore, that now with his main skill, which is being popular, sort of no longer applying, that there's no longer any need for him. And so a few MPs have said that he should step down and that number will probably grow over the coming weeks and months. So you think this could actually undo his premiership? Things look really, really bad over the medium term. So there's a very, very bumpy few days ahead, but it looks like there won't be a a cabinet coup. Most of the senior politicians have sort of stuck by him. But in in Britain, weak prime ministers can sort of limp on for a very long time. His predecessor, Theresa May, sort of survived a, a metaphorical assassination attempt and limped on for almost another year or so. These things do take time. 
And if it happens, when it happens, you know, who, who are the contenders? How do you think that would play out? There are a few obvious contenders. So one contender is Rishi Sunak, who's Britain's finance minister. Of course, I understand people's anxiety and concern about rising prices and inflation. And, and that's why part of my job is to always be listening and making sure that the policies we've got in place are there to help people as we have. Who became very popular and well-known during the crisis by handing out hundreds of billions of pounds. And so because of that, he's relatively popular. The other candidate that gets sort of talked about is Liz Truss, who's the new foreign secretary. Russia is the aggressor here. They have massed a huge number of troops along the Ukrainian border and in illegally annexed Crimea. She's quite sort of bouncy and enthusiastic, but has been a very sort of competent minister and is popular within the Conservative Party. But there's plenty of other people who are slightly less well known. So there's plenty of options to go at. And, and whether he leaves in a, a, a few days or at the end of his term or whenever, what, what do you think his legacy will be sort of in the British body politic? Before he came to power, there, some people thought there was the basically sort of clown ceiling in British politics. So Boris Johnson had had big positions as sort of mayor of London. But the idea of handing this man nuclear codes or having him in charge of the sort of fifth or sixth biggest economy in the world struck some as ridiculous. But it happened. But Boris Johnson had the misfortune to be a good time king in really, really bad times. Like, he is not a politician who is built for difficult decisions. His entire shtick is being optimistic and saying everything is going to be great. And in the middle of a pandemic, that just doesn't really work. So he's been, although a very, very lucky man in his life, in terms of his premiership, he's been relatively unlucky. Fundamentally, what's happened is just not his skill set. Thanks very much for joining us, Duncan. Thank you for having me. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Demons of lameness come out in the name of Jesus. Get out of their bodies! Hmm, a little bit too in your face. Hmm, not really in your face enough. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Ah, that's beautiful, okay. Ooh, okay, close that tab. All right, I can get on board with that. 
When I was a kid with just a bit of spiritual gnawing going on, I went shopping. I rode my bike to a bunch of nearby churches to see if anything grabbed me. These days, with religious services shifting online, test driving new faiths is easier than ever. It's something a lot of people have tried in recently spiritually trying times. Polls suggest that 14% of Christians had switched churches since the pandemic began. Nearly a fifth were attending more than one. But where we choose to commune is a matter of life and death for those institutions. So religious institutions have suffered in the pandemic in much the same way businesses have. Avantika Chulkoti is an international correspondent with The Economist. It's an idea that Adam Smith uh, first theorized on in The Wealth of Nations sort of in 1776. And he made this point that churches are enterprises just like any other, like a butcher, a baker, and a brewer. And so, you know, in tough times, they need to innovate. He also said a lot about the sort of markets these religions operate in. So if you're in a free competitive market, you need donations from the public and volunteers to make ends meet. Then the clergy act with what he called zeal and industry to make sure they stay relevant to the public. Okay, so you've been looking into this for for some time. Are there any specific churches or synagogues or temples that have reacted with that kind of Smithian zeal in industry? So you've had some winners and, and some losers coming up during the pandemic. Some groups that were very quick to move online. And so a big, big warm welcome to church today. We're so excited to have you here. They've experimented with streaming live music. And, you know, we know that this matters. There was a Gallup poll in the US asking people how they choose uh, which church they attend. And three quarters of Americans said music is a factor in this choice. They've also had to think about what they do with their physical buildings. So when lockdowns ended, some were much quicker to reopen their doors than others. You also had churches finding different things to do in their spaces, creating co-working spaces, places for people to come and meet and speak in small groups. So it's really been a case-by-case basis. And from interviews, what I felt was it really depended on the leaders at the religious institution, how they innovated, what they did over the pandemic so far. And presumably, in addition to leadership, if they're, if they're businesses, what assets they have matters too, so like property, for instance. Yeah, exactly. So when we think about the solutions for struggling religious groups right now, actually selling off your property portfolio is one option. These groups have really valuable real estate. Just take the Church of Scientology. It owns some of the world's most glamorous addresses in Hollywood. It has a castle in South Africa, a mansion in Sussex in England. And a lot of this is worth a lot. Even before the pandemic, we've seen religious groups selling up these assets. Church buildings in Britain have closed at a rate of more than 200 a year in the past decade. And what we're seeing is, you know, not just churches, but synagogues, Hindu temples, mosques, actually selling some of these assets and trying to rent space instead. So the sense is that COVID could basically prompt a rush of asset sales from religious groups. But that must must not sit very well with some of the attendees, right? Perhaps they don't want to see this explicit business church link. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with selling real estate, there's sort of a spiritual and emotional connection and you get a lot of opposition. So one example in 2020 was uh, one of the most famous Hindu temples in the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh. And they were branded anti-Hindu when they tried to auction off dozens of their properties that you know didn't really make sense for them to keep up. The maintenance is incredibly expensive. And they, in the end, had to drop the idea. Beyond the congregation itself, you can also have hurdles from the rest of society. In the UK, we have planning permission that you know, limits what we can do with some of these buildings. There's lots that can basically limit how quickly these institutions can sell off their properties. But, you know, they find ways. And I suppose the worse things get, then a lot of institutions simply don't have a choice. Yeah, and, you know, it's not just selling your real estate. The other big strategy to shore up your finances is merging. This is most common in the U.S., where the Protestant mainstream churches are sort of similar enough in what they preach that mergers are possible. And this is not always successful. You have high rates of people leaving a church after this kind of merger. You have the same things you have in business. You know, you have leadership struggles. You have conflicts in sort of the vision for, for what these churches should look like. I interviewed one expert on megachurches who's a pastor, and he, he put it really well. He said, a good coupling of parishes is like a successful marriage. Each partner has to sort of be strong on their own and bring something to the relationship. Where you get a struggling church combining with one that's doing well financially, it often just gets swallowed up. And, and what's your view on the, the general, the longer term trends that, that predates the pandemic of a kind of generally secularizing society where, where the, the, the church, the religious institutions were of kind of waning influence anyway? So, I mean, you know, a lot of our conversation has been about the supply side, you know, what churches and temples and mosques are doing to shore up their businesses. But I do wonder about the demand side. We're still going through a pandemic where we've seen um, a lot of death, danger, risk. And there is a question about what this does to people's interest in the spiritual, people's interest in volunteering, in people's interest in coming together once a week and having some sort of community group. So as with so many things with COVID, it's too soon to say, but I do really wonder about the demand for faith in the world. Evatika, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. For more analysis of institutions of all sorts provided by our piously probing correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Head to the link in the notes for today's show, economist.com slash intelligence offer, and you'll find a great introductory deal. Back in November, in Florida, there was a particularly awful shooting. Daniel Knowles is our Midwest correspondent, and it's based in Chicago. A woman called Sarah Nicole Morales, who was a a 35-year-old librarian and who was pregnant, was killed by a 40-year-old motorcyclist, a guy called Andrew Durr. That girl tried to kill me. This officer's going to come around. I'm so sorry. Relax. I'm so sorry. Miss Morales had driven her car into Mr. Durr's motorbike. 
According to the police, it looked like she did it deliberately. He was knocked off his bike. And instead of stopping, she drove away to her home and he followed her with a couple of other people who had witnessed the crash. And when they arrived at her home, what the police say happened is that uh, she came out of her house with a gun and pointed it at the three people. And Mr. Durr pulled out his own gun and shot her dead. And what happened then? Well, I think a police investigation is still undergoing, but what it seems like happened was that this was a a road rage incident. You know, whatever it was that motivated Miss Morales to sort of drive her car and to try and crash into him, it was seemingly deliberate, according to the police, is pretty unclear. But it happens everywhere that people get into arguments over driving, and it happens in America that far too frequently end in gunfights. You say far too frequently. What, What are the actual numbers here? According to Everytown Gun Safety, which is uh, a kind of research and lobby group that um, campaigns against uh, kind of guns and for stricter gun laws, last year there were around 500 people who were either injured or killed in a shooting that kind of started with a road rage incident. And that's more than double the number in 2016. It's been going up for several years now. And, And what's the hypothesis on why that number is going up so sharply? I talked to their researchers and it's hard to come up with a kind of conclusive reason. I mean, one thing that's happened in the past few years is that driving has been getting more stressful. You know, before the pandemic, the amount of kind of miles that Americans were driving was beginning to to really climb, um, having been stagnant for several years. And with it, you know, cities were getting more congested. People were getting into more traffic jams. And, And since the lockdown, traffic kind of reduced in the beginning of the pandemic, but there were more accidents. And and since it's sort of been lifted, it seems like congestion has actually climbed even more than before. You've had more traffic incidents. So it could just be that driving is basically worse than it was before and people are getting angrier and there are more road rage incidents. But another trend that's become clear is that many more Americans uh, have been buying guns, certainly throughout the pandemic. Surely that's another possible factor here. So I I think that's probably the more important one. You know, gun sales have been very high for years. They really jumped in 2020. And the number of Americans who have concealed carry permits has increased dramatically by 48% since 2016. Where road rage shootings are most common is very much in places where kind of gun ownership is also common. So a lot of the South, um, you know, places like Texas and Alabama have quite high rates and in in places like California, New York and Hawaii, where it's very difficult to get a concealed carry permit, they're a lot rarer. And I think this is actually kind of an unusual thing because most gun crime in America does not involve kind of legally owned guns, but this is one where it often does. And as people have kind of increased the number of concealed carry permits they get, they seem more likely to use them in anger when they get caught in an accident, that kind of thing. And so the trends would suggest with more guns out there, more concealed guns out there, with more people driving, getting frustrated, congestion, driving recklessly, perhaps this is only going to get worse. Unfortunately, that's how it looks. The number of cars on the road is increasing, traffic is increasing, and so too are the number of guns. And murders in general have increased in recent years, and so too have traffic deaths, both kind of reversing what had been a downwards trend. And we're now up to almost 80,000 deaths a year between cars and guns. And so I think uh, incidents that involve both cars and guns at once are also going to get more common. It's a particularly lethal combination and something that doesn't really happen anywhere else in the world. 
Daniel, thanks very much for joining us. Jason, always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review and see you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.